started this morning. We have been studying the kingdom. This is part of Second Peter uh, chapter 1 that we're into that talks about the entry into the eternal kingdom shall be abundantly supplied. So we've kind of taken a break from the verse by verse of Second Peter to uh, just go in and take a look at uh, what does the Bible say about the kingdom. Uh, and as we talked about last week, there are differing views on the kingdom. Some people believe we're living in the kingdom now, that there is no literal physical earthly kingdom yet to come of a thousand years. And uh, there are all kinds of various viewpoints. So we just started kind of back at the beginning like we always need to do and look and say, what does the Bible say about the kingdom? And then go with it from there. Quite frequently amongst theologians who like to argue, which is 98% of them, I think 98% give the rest a bad name, but everybody likes to argue their particular position. <clears throat> and so uh, they often approach things from an either-or uh, standpoint, and that comes from a hermeneutical point. There's only one correct interpretation per verse. That is that is taught in seminaries all over the place. There's not multiple interpretations. There's one interpretation. But the interpretation could be it's both. And that's that's what often has failed to be looked, looked at. So that's what we've been exploring, looking to see what, uh, what was taught in the Old Testament, what was taught in the New Testament, and that's where we're at now. We're actually at point 21. So before we begin, let's take just a moment for prayer, uh, kind of gather our thoughts, push away all the problems of the world. You can kind of speak to uh, uh, Seth and Galen and me and Brian because we've been fighting with the music equipment this morning already. And so far, Galen is lip-syncing everything over on the, the keyboard, and the keyboard is not lip-syncing at all. And we've restarted everything, and finally the, the words will project on the screen. But in any event, uh, if you have a room for an extra prayer along the way, pray that the Lord heals this. He already healed the water in the other building that, that wouldn't turn off uh, this morning and finally got it turned off at the uh, uh, handle underneath the sink and and then found out it was just something loose, and now it's all fixed, and now it's working again. So, you know, he's in that healing business of living water and all that. So let's just, <clears throat> let's just pray he takes care of this keyboard, and then we'll have a little fuller sound for the uh, music session. As you can tell, Kelvin is not here this morning, so that leaves it up to me, and my voice is not working well either. So we'll, uh, we'll see how this plays out. All right, let's take this moment to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, we're so amazingly blessed to be able to come together and assemble ourselves and it do so freely without uh, worry about the government, at least at this point. And Father, we thank you for that great privilege, that great blessing that we have that so many Christians throughout the church age have not been able to enjoy. I pray we'll make the most of it this morning. And that we'll think about what your word has to say. And that we'll seek to apply it to our own lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are at... Point 21, as I mentioned in the um, handout, and part of the question is, and part of the argument has been that it, the word kingdom has always referred to a physical kingdom. And when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, John came preaching the kingdom, they were always talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, I believe the millennial kingdom was part of, uh, was part of their preaching quite clearly. Because the Jews were looking forward to it. But the, the way into the literal millennial kingdom is through the physical kingdom, which is found not in an area of land, but in a person named Jesus Christ. He is the kingdom, and it's very clearly spelled out. When he was speaking to Nicodemus, he said, Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he wasn't talking about a... Uh, 
physical kingdom there. He was, he was talking about a spiritual rebirth to enter into the kingdom. So you have the issue of the spiritual kingdom that was taught early on. It's taught all the way back in the time of Israel when they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests to God. So whenever the word kingdom is used, and you can go back through your notes because that's, that's where it's found, wherever kingdom is used, there's a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. It's not just a piece of land with a king ruling over it. Okay? There are spiritual aspects to that. And people often, again, take either or. But le- what I'm trying to say is let's take a look at what both, of the, what both issues of the kingdom have to say. Now, we know that Jesus taught about the kingdom. That was point 20 there. He taught about the spiritual kingdom. Uh, he is the king himself who brought the kingdom because wherever you have a kingdom, you have a king. He is the king. And didn't he say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants, my, my followers would be fighting. But they're not. So the first way, if you want to get in the physical kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, you have to be born again into the spiritual kingdom. And I believe the Jews fully missed that at the first advent. All they were looking for was for uh, Messiah to come in and throw the Romans out and give them their land back. That's what they were looking for, and as a result, they missed the Savior of the world. They missed the Messiah who would take away their sins, which is a much bigger problem than who's ruling over them. And they just didn't see it. Now today, people are still looking for the same thing. They want elect the right politicians to throw the evildoers out. And some are one, thinking we can establish the kingdom here on earth and we can have the lion lay down with the lamb. I mean, after all, we can drug them pretty well, can't we? We are a, a nation of uh, pharmaceuticals. So we could have a lion and a lamb laying down together. That's because they're they're both drug beyond all comparison I wish the possum in the backyard would have been drugged last night with a dog and a possum fighting it was worse than the raccoon the other another day but anyway the possum lost and yet thrown over the back fence but the possum is gone this morning so <laughs> no matter what you do to them you can't kill them anyway <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the devil, isn't it? You just keep beating the fire out of him. But it takes the Lord, <laughs> it takes the Lord to do it. Now, <clears throat> Jesus taught his disciples these things, and I'm fully convinced that his primary focus was on the spiritual kingdom. And had they accepted him as a, as the the head of the the spiritual kingdom, then the the physical kingdom might have come in. But wasn't the way the plan was laid out from the beginning. Now, the early church, this is where we left off, continued to teach about the kingdom. So what type of kingdom did the early church teach? Now, many think, well, they were still preaching, teaching the physical kingdom. When Paul went out, whenever the disciples went out preaching the kingdom, they were still talking only about the physical kingdom that was yet to come. That's because some believed early on in the church It'll come around. <clears throat> You're not praying hard enough. Some believed early on in the church that the rapture was immediately imminent and that the Lord could come back at any time and set up and establish his kingdom. And they believed that the disciples all thought that way, that when they were preaching the kingdom, it was all about the millennial kingdom. But let's see what they have to say. Because oftentimes a position is taken. It's the way they teach people to do it in schools. Now, you take a position and prove it or disprove it. Okay? And so you're looking for uh, evidence, if you will, to prove a particular point. Instead of letting the evidence speak for itself and say what conclusions should we reach. Now, <clears throat> were they preaching, teaching only the physical kingdom? And so let's look at the verses that are, that are used there. The early evangelists carried on the message of the kingdom. From Acts chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, he says, <clears throat> But when they believed, Philip, you remember the first evangelist we've got, the early deacon by the name of Philip, 
He was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. So here are the early evangelists carrying on the message of the kingdom. Now, if it's only physical, do you think maybe they'd have dropped it along the way in the church as they came to realize the Lord wouldn't come, wasn't coming back tomorrow? And they came to realize more information like what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, you're not of the day. It's not for you to know the times and the epochs. The Father is fixed by his own authority. In fact, that's what Jesus told the disciples just for the ascension. Hey, so it's not, are, are, you, are you setting up your kingdom now? Remember the question? Not for you to know that. Your job is to do what I told you. Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Now it seems like that the rapture needs to be at least postponed until after somebody's been to the remotest parts of the earth. Would appear to me that that's what he's saying. Leave, get out of here Go tell people about the kingdom. Paul continued to evangelize with the message of the kingdom. Now here's Paul, the great theologian. So what did he talk about? <clears throat> In Acts chapter 19. Now, if we were to follow the chronology through the book of Acts, we find out that Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9. He'd been a persecutor, a great persecutor of Christians. He wanted to lock them up. He wanted to kill them. That's who he was. He stood there and watched as they, as they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And here in chapter 19, what was his message? Because he'd already been uh, teaching for several years and been accepted by the other apostles. And here's his message in Acts chapter 19. He entered the synagogue and he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now he's in a synagogue. Do they know about the kingdom of God? If anybody does, they should. Because they've been looking for it for 2,000 years. Or 1,500 years anyway. They've been looking for it. So what, what about, the, what was he teaching them? That's a legitimate question to ask was he saying that hey this is all we're thinking about now is this thousand year reign of Christ on earth then we go on to Acts 20 we keep reading because when we just go to one verse and don't compare scripture with scripture we tend to jump to some conclusions that many times are just not fully correct they may not be totally wrong they're just not fully correct Acts chapter 20 <clears throat> Turn there with me if you would. Give me a chance to get a drink of a warm liquid. <clears throat> Acts 20 and verse 24. Uh, I love this passage. Paul was basically ordaining an, a new batch of pastor, teacher, elders, overseers. And here they are. Acts 20, 24. <clears throat> I do not consider my life of any account is dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. He writes about that in 2 Timothy 4 when he said, I have finished my course. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. This is to the Ephesian elders. He'd been with them three years. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He taught the entire council. That was part of what he was there to do and he did it in three years. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd, that word shepherd, poimeno, is the word for pastor. Okay, so you have a shepherd, you have a pastor, you have an overseer, and you have an elder, all wrapped up in this one passage. Which he purchased with his own blood, because after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, 
speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So this is Paul's basically ordination ceremony of the Ephesian elders. Okay, This is their graduation ceremony. It's a commencement address. And he's saying, this is what you can get ready for. But what had he been teaching them about the kingdom? Was everything he taught them about prophecy yet to come? It doesn't seem that that's reasonable. Because he's teaching them his context, look at this, concerning the kingdom was clearly more about the pastor's role in the church than the coming millennial kingdom. Now, did he talk about the millennial kingdom? Yes, he did. Did he talk about prophecy? A lot of it. You can read 1 Thessalonians, and that's just struck with all kinds of prophecy through that. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. So yeah, Paul wrote a lot about prophecy to prepare them for things to come. But he's talking here to elders about the pastor's role in the church more than the coming millennial kingdom. In other words, it's going to come, but take care of business now. He had the same message of the kingdom near the end of his ministry that he taught from prison. And we jump all the way over to Acts 28 we find him still talking about the kingdom. In the 28-23, they'd set a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in large number. And this is Paul in prison. It says, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. A little later on in that chapter, Acts 28, that's the last chapter of the book of Acts. Verse 30, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Now see, Paul was teaching them and he was teaching them well because we get ready as the church, to serve with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And that's called inheritance. The scripture makes it very clear what it is. It's our inheritance. So there are things that we do now and that we are actually preparing to serve in the millennial kingdom. We serve with him. We are his bride in the millennial kingdom. And exactly what our role is, We can get a couple of things out of it. Some are going to have positions of leadership and rulership. That's what some are going to have. Some are going to gain that from their works, if you will, because we work because we're saved, not to get saved or prove we're saved. We work because we're saved. And so the Lord is going to reward us for those those works. Now, it's clearly stated that Christians... are presently in his spiritual kingdom. It's clearly stated that. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's actually the word exousia, used translated domain, which is the word for authority. From the authority of darkness, we were part of the, part of the devil's kingdom, if you will, until we got delivered out of it. As believers, we're all born as enemies of Christ. We're born into that. But we get delivered out of that. And he said, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These verbs are in the aorist tense. Aorist tense is a completed action. Point of time. How did he do? What did he do? Who's the us? Believers, we have been delivered into the kingdom. Now, what kind of kingdom? Because there is no physical kingdom now. That's kind of like my old friend Dan Hardy says, the doctrine of the blatantly obvious. Kind of falls into that category. Now, the kingdom of God, point A, is primarily concerned about spiritual things. And here we go with Paul once again. Romans 14, verse 16 
<clears throat> Therefore do not let what is good for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Paul's uh, spoken to the Corinthians. He's spoken to the Romans. He's spoken to us. Now don't take this freedom that you have in Christ as the church, as his bride, and don't harm other people with it. You can eat any anything you want to eat. You're free to do that. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. You're free to eat anything you want to eat. But what if it makes a brother stumble? Is it more about your rights or is it more about his need? How do you, how do you encourage somebody? You don't put a stumbling block in front of people. I guess the Lord's wanting me to turn the page. I guess he's not. <laughs> I'm fighting the devil here, so let's go with that. <clears throat> he says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. To the Jews, what was it kind of? Didn't they have a dietary code? They had all these restrictions. They had, it's good to know it's spring cleaning. It'd be time for all of us to go clean all the leaven out of our houses for spring cleaning. Because where did that come from? Right out of the Mosaic Law. Go in there and clean this clean this thing out. He says, but the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom of heaven, see, is about spiritual things. First of all, the Christian's focus should be on the application of kingdom principles. Now, <clears throat> from 1 Corinthians chapter 4... Paul's writing the Corinthian church, which is a merry band of ragamuffins at the very best. He says, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In a sense, a spiritual father. I exhort you, therefore, be an imitator of me. For the reason, this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach in every church. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Now this is Paul basically laying down the line here and and uh, saying some things that need to change in the Corinthian church. Okay, He's making it very clear. Because what happened was a group of people moved in and they took over the church. They basically ran Apollos off. We find that out in chapter 16. And Apollos said, I'm not going back there. That's the craziest bunch of people I've ever been around in my life and I'm not going back. And he didn't. That, that we know of. But they messed up everything you can mess up. And they're still called saints. In chapter 1 verse 2. To the saints who are in Corinth. Because they argued over who baptized who. They didn't know that how to understand spiritual things. Chapter 2. Chapter 3. They didn't understand eternal rewards. 4. They rejected authority established by God. Chapter 5. They permitted flagrant immorality in the church. Chapter 6. They brought lawsuits with one against one another in secular courts. Chapter 7. They messed up the institution of marriage. Chapter 8. They messed up they messed up freedom. Chapter 9, they messed up giving. 10, they messed up their spiritual heritage. 11, they messed up the Lord's table. 12, they messed up spiritual gifts. 13, they messed up love. 14, they messed up church government. And 15, some of them did not accept the resurrection anymore. Now that's about as goofy a church as you can get assembled under one roof and still be called saints. Still, to have, be saved so as by fire, chapter 3. Paul is saying they are secure in Christ, but they need to straighten out. Now he said, you think you got it all figured out, huh? He says, all right, if you want to, when I come to you, we'll just, uh, uh, if you want to go power to power, I, I know where mine comes from. And I'm ready. I don't want to do this. 
He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? How do you want me to come? That's kind of like when you instruct children at times. <laughs> Is it not? And didn't he call them children? Then in chapter 3, call them carnal. And sometimes you just have to get their attention a little bit. And that's what he did. He said, I can come. Do you, do you want it? Uh, how, how do you want this? Do you want this to be a good time or you want this to be a rough time? choice is yours but we are going to get through this now spiritual inheritance in the kingdom point C was taught early in the church spiritual inheritance James chapter 2 first epistle of the New Testament first book of the New Testament he said listen my beloved brethren in chapter 2 <coughs> verse 5 did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Notice there's a condition for inheritance in the kingdom. Established right there, those who love him. Do you love him or not? You want a real inheritance in the kingdom? It's a, it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual inheritance. Failure to apply kingdom principles costs eternal rewards. This is from 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 5. says, Do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were declared righteous, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. So he's warning them. If you blow it here, he's writing believers. Again, chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, to the saints who are at Corinth. How do you become a saint? Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He explains that in 1 Corinthians 15. So putting the whole context of the book together, these people didn't lose their salvation, but they were squandering their inheritance. Just like the prodigal son. Wasted all on the wrong stuff. Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you in the past, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. How many politicians do we have going to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God? A few, a few of them have risen above the storm with wings of eagles. They have gotten up there above it. But when they start playing this game of politics, because a couple of these Greek words actually, one of them means covert politics, and the other means overt politics. When you're right out in the open with what with what you're doing, and he says, you want to do this? What's do we want to sell our position? I guess as a congressman, yeah. But you have to sell it honestly. You have to point out the the pros and the cons and deal with it honestly. Not lie about stuff and withhold pertinent information and things like that. That is doing things for personal gain, even though you're saying it's in the service of the people. It's doing it for personal gain instead of to the glory of God. And whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're do, supposed to do all to the glory of God. He wrote that to the Corinthians too. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 5. You know for certain he know a moral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he's saying you want an inheritance. You want these rewards for the millennial kingdom. You want these rewards for eternity. Some things Christians shouldn't do. Have they been paid for on the cross? Yes. So what are they to a Christian? An absolute waste of time and an improper witness to others. 
Eternal inheritance is for the new creation. We are not the old body. Eternal inheritance is for the new creation. We are. And not the old body. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I tell you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This coming kingdom has a spiritual nature. And we're going to be a part of it. One of these days the trumpet's going to sound. uh, The dead in Christ will rise first. And then guess what? Believers are going to be raised from the physically dead. Or they're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. It says it a little later in that paragraph. So it's, it's for the new creation we are, not for the old body. So if we're looking only for a thousand year millennial kingdom on this earth, then uh, maybe we're just missing the point of the kingdom altogether. Now, <clears throat> both the spiritual and physical kingdoms will be delivered to the Father. Is Christ's spiritual kingdom full yet? No. I think if the spiritual kingdom was full, we'd all be out of here at the rapture. It's not full yet. He's still adding people. It's amazing to see the number of people that he, that he adds. China, there are 20,000 people a day coming to the Lord. That's the latest statistics that I've heard about. Part of the problem is, is that there are 25,000 more people being born every day, (laughs) literally, in China than are dying. So you have a net loss. 20,000 is not enough to keep up with the trend of more population. And that means the Christians, even by adding that many, are... We're, we're losing ground. Now, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 27, he says, For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. As an Adam will die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. First one to get his resurrection body. His humanity, his deity coupled together. He's raised from the dead and it is a resurrection body. And it's going to be so great. He had to veil it to even appear to people over the course of 40 days after he walked away from the tomb. He had he had to veil it. But in full-blown resurrection glory, we can't look on him in this body. We have to have a new body to even be able to look at Christ in his glory. That's hard for us to imagine because we know how bright the sun gets from time to time and all that. But 1 John 3 says, See how great love we the Father has for us that we shall be made like him so we can look at him so we can look upon the Lord he says Christ the first fruit <clears throat> after that those who are Christ that is coming <clears throat> now what this does is lay out the order of resurrection because it's called the first resurrection in Revelation but the first revel- resurrection has four parts to it Christ is the first part. Those who are Christ, who are Christ? The church. That's us. That's the rapture. Those who are Christ, it is coming. And he says, and then comes the end. The end of what? It's actually the end of that age of Israel, which is the second advent, when the Lord takes on and defeats all of his enemies. And that is when <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, the prophets, that's when they get their resurrection body. That comes from Daniel chapter 12. A resurrection at the end of the age, i.e. the age of Israel. So that is the third part of the resurrection. Right there, which would be the age of Israel saints. Now I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> 
because I got a few questions to ask Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Abraham, what were you thinking about whenever Hagar was proposed to you by your wife? What got into your head? What were you thinking about standing in front of Abimelech saying, she's my sister? What what were you thinking about? Because we can have, we don't have sin natures. There's not going to be any argumentation. There's going to be communication that is going to be quite enlightening. David, why didn't you go out with your armies to fight in the spring like kings do? Huh? What got into you? And then he'll probably look at me and go, well, what about you? You did and did it. <laughs> we all have our, our, our moments throughout the course of this life. Anytime we think we've, we're perfect, we always get slapped right down with it. And after that comes the end. End of what? It tells us when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father who has abolished all rule and authority and power and he must reign till he's put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, you have to stop and think and put some prophecy together on that one because... When does that happen? In the millennial kingdom, there are human beings, just like you and I with sin natures, who are saved, because that's called the sheep in Matthew 25, and they go in to start the millennial kingdom. Included in that are the 144,000 male virgin Jews who got sealed at the early part of the trib, and they make it into the millennial kingdom. And they are fruitful, and they multiply over the course of a thousand years. But they also have children. Children who are humans, earth dwellers, who also have to make the decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not saved because they're born to two saints. They're saved because they've made a decision for Christ as well. And so there will, you know, the question, will there be death in the millennial kingdom? Yes, there will be. There will still be sin natures. Now we know longevity will be restored. People will be living a long time. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that one. We are talking the other day. If you live to be 969 years old, And we think about now, a lot of us in our 70s going, where did the 60s go? <laughs> We're talking about our age, not 1960. We're talking about where did the 60s go? And what about the 50s? And it's kind of like, well, that 7th century just flew by. <laughs> I don't even remember anything that was there in that 7th century. But to, to, to live incredibly long lives, that's the millennial kingdom. Longevity will be restored. So, but there'll still be death. And those people that die in the millennium need to be resurrected. And that's called the first resurrection because he's going to abolish all death. All that physical death is going to be done away with. The last enemy that'll be abolished is death. He conquered sin and death because he walked away from a tomb, but he's going to one day abolish it altogether. The true kingdom cannot be shaken. Can a physical kingdom be shaken? I think you could look at Ukraine right now and go, yeah, that was a kingdom that was shaken. You can look at multiple kingdoms over the course of human history, and they can be shaken. But a real kingdom, the one of Christ, Hebrews chapter 12. This is, this is one of the warnings in the book of Hebrews. Some say there's seven, some say there's eight, but there's a series of warnings that are just leveled uh, clearly in the book of Hebrews. It says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. He's talking about Moses giving warnings to the Jews early on. Remember, it's an epistle to the Hebrews, to the Jews. It says, And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, 
Yet once more, I was shaked not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now Peter expands that in 2 Peter 2 and 3. Hmm. He's going to shake it really bad. In fact, he's going to destroy the present heavens and the earth and make a new one. So there is a, a shaking. And the expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken might remain. Therefore, since we have, look at this present possession here, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. <clears throat> For our God is a consuming fire. When we stop and think about we are in the kingdom because we are in Christ and he is the king. He is the king of this kingdom. And can he be shaken? No. So why should we be? When we see the world falling apart, there's a good song out now. Says the, some say it's fallen, the world is falling apart. Really, it's just falling into place. It's lining up with the prophecies. It's getting ready to happen sometime. I don't know when. I can't put a date on it. Don't want to. Because I'm, I'm really enjoying the time we have now. Because I'm watching the Lord work in amazing, amazing ways. But a kingdom that cannot be shaken. <clears throat> You're in Christ... And the whole heavens and earth get destroyed. And it's coming. How scared should you be? Not at all. Right? Didn't a Hebrew, a John 10 talk about you're in the hand of God. There's no power in heaven on earth under the earth that can take you out of the, out of the hand of God. That's as secure as it gets, folks. I have a cellar that I go into at times with approaching storms. That's because <clears throat> human kingdoms can be shaken. But the spiritual kingdom we have in Christ can't be. Now, I'm not going to be foolish and stand out there like <clears throat> G. Gordon Liddy did and challenge the lightning. Now, that's silliness is all that is. <clears throat> but we can go down in there and think sometimes the Lord calms the storm. Sometimes he calms us in the middle of it. And he uses different ways to go about doing that. Now, what are some kingdom principles? So, it's a so what. Now, if you, if you say amongst a lot of my friends, um, now but not yet. That is a phrase that say, we're in the kingdom now but not yet in the kingdom. Well, what does the Bible say? I have been delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. Am I there now? Yes. Is there a millennial kingdom going on? No. Will it be coming? Yes. But sometimes people take a phrase or phraseology or they take one item and then they lay, put a big label on everybody that uses that and it's just not a good way to do theology. It's not a good way to do fellowship. It's just not a good way to function as a Christian. I don't believe <clears throat> what about some things that can we can we work in work in the kingdom? I would think so. How do we do that? Well, we'll let the scripture tell us. We can work together with other Christians. We can work together with other Christians. Now this is Colossians 4, verse 10 and 11. Again, Paul, this is about 62 A.D. that he's writing. He's going to die in, within that decade uh, by being beheaded. So he's near the end of, of his writing. So he understands fully about the kingdom issues and the kingdom principles. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Also Barnabas' cousin Mark about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also... Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. He's talking about fellow Jews 
who are working for the kingdom of God. And obviously, it has to do with the spiritual kingdom. Are we getting ready for the physical kingdom? Yeah. Will we bring it in? Not without the Lord defeating his enemies. We're supposed to walk worthy of the one that invited us. 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 10 says, Your witnesses, so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children. So that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It is an honor to be in God's kingdom. So how are we going to act? How are we going to act? Are we going to act responsibly? Or are we going to act just as irresponsibly as we did as unbelievers? There are no New Testament writers that say, yeah, you're saved, you can be satisfied, and you can go do anything you want to do and please God. Now, you can do anything you want to do, but <laughs> and you're still saved because of his faithfulness, not yours. But there's going to be a cost. And the cost is going to be discipline and time and loss of rewards for eternity. There will be a cost to it. We're to act worthy of the kingdom we've been given. 2 Thessalonians 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. Your love of each one of you toward one another grows greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you're suffering. How do you get into the kingdom? By grace through faith. Once you believe in Christ, it's one of the things that you receive at the moment you put your faith in Christ. You are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Now, we're not there yet quite clearly but we're supposed to act worthy of it that's how we say thank you to the Lord we're supposed to proclaim the truth about it from 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, we spent some time on this within the last year or so 2 Timothy 4 the first five verses I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom this is the last book of Paul before he dies. And he's getting ready to tell us that right there in that context. It's the last book he wrote. By his appearing in his kingdom. Okay. <clears throat> Preach the word. This is instructions to Timothy. Instructions to pastors. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort with all great patience and instruction. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, to mythology. And sadly, that's what's happened to a lot of the churches today. They've gotten away from the Word of God the literal understanding of it, the understanding of it in its historical setting, the understanding of, of the word as to how it comes in and applies to life today. Kingdom principles are preparation from etern for eternity. They are preparation for eternity. It says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, that's the, that's the last words he writes. Okay, the heavenly kingdom. That's the source. There's going to be a kingdom in heaven. There's also going to be a kingdom on earth. Paul understood that fully. Appreciation of the kingdom is shown by spiritual growth and spiritual fruit. Shown by spiritual growth and fruit. 
from 2 Peter 1, we just got through covering this. These are all these qualities, he says. That's the verse we launched into this. About the, the uh, with all diligence, applying all diligence into these areas. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you want to have a greatness in the kingdom? You can. Life is a series of choices. and God didn't make them for you. God established things so that we could make them. He made us in his image. Meaning we can make decisions. But also that we are responsible for those decisions that we make. So these principles establish the foundation for kingdom living in the church age. Kingdom living in the church age. And it's reasonable conclusion that believers are presently in a spiritual kingdom and should seek to live by it, looking to the spiritual and physical millennial kingdom. That will be established when our king defeats all of his enemies. That's the final battle of the campaign of Armageddon that takes place right at the second advent. Zechariah 14 is the passage. Now, one of the reasons I do this is this... The sermon, the sermon on the Mount, and I run into this more than I like to. I talk to people that know a lot about the Bible. They've got a view that the kingdom discussion all through the New Testament is only physical kingdom they're talking about. And as a result, they take the Gospels and throw them out, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, that's the rule set up for the millennial kingdom of Christ. And that's what they hold to. That all of the Gospels, uh, that's age of Israel, not applicable for the church. And to me, that's short-sighted. 1 Timothy 6.3 says, Sound doctrine is built on the words of Jesus Christ. So how are you going to throw the Gospels out of your theology and come up with sound doctrine? And also... If it's millennial kingdom, how does blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake fit into the millennial kingdom? Because the Lord's ruling that there's not going to be any persecution. I believe that these principles taught, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, are universal. They transcend dispensations. They go, this is the Lord talking. He is talking into time and space and telling us what is important. And he's, he's making it very clear. So to throw the Gospels out is, a, in my estimation, a serious mistake in one's theology. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love and mercy and grace and blessings. Thank you for your word once again. And Father, we just pray that, that uh, we'll be able to remember that this is, this is your place and we owe you everything. Let us walk in a manner worthy of this calling to which we have been called. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.